Uh, hey, I'm Jonah. I am on staff here at Calvary. I primarily oversee the um, young adults uh, youth and slash youth ministry. So that's kind of uh, my gig. But very excited to share with you all tonight just what the Lord has uh, placed on uh, my heart. And this study um, this that we're going to get into tonight, it's in the Gospel of Mark. And um, I would say this is a, you know, our Wednesday night service is more of a believer's uh, study. So there's a lot of uh, meat versus milk, so to speak. Uh, and that's what this study is. There's going to be some uh, jumping around. So for all the Bible scholars in the house, you're excited, right? <laughs> but yes, okay, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at this beautiful story uh, it's found in verses 21 through 43. We're just going to go verse by verse, as is our normal uh, procedure. Verses 21 through 43. Yeah, and as you're turning there, those of you who are familiar with the uh, Gospel of Mark know that it is a fast-moving gospel. It goes at a very uh, fast rate, so to speak. There's only 16 chapters, uh, and it feels like Three years of Jesus' ministry is just like condensed into a highlight reel. So it's a ton of fun. I love this gospel so much. Very fun to teach and preach through. And the emphasis of the gospel of Mark is not so much Jesus' words. The the emphasis is more on his actions. So we're going to see a little bit of both tonight. And this story that we're going to be looking at, it's one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible I have heard. Um crazy stories that include this story, people reading it and being healed and yeah, all sorts of really miraculous, awesome stuff. But we're going to be looking at two people specifically. There's a man and a woman in this story. There's Jesus too. But there's a man and a woman and their faith is increased. Um, so if, if, you're, if you're there, Mark chapter 5, let's pick it up in verse 21. It says this, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. All right, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for tonight, Lord. We thank you for Wednesday night, such a special time just to get together and do an in-depth study of your word, Lord. Tonight, I ask that uh, you would increase our own faith. When we walk through the doors of the church, many times uh, we have uh, doubt or fear, and not every time, Lord, but we, I just know uh, me, I, I totally struggle with that. I know others do as well, Lord. So we're asking that you would increase our faith as we read your word tonight, Lord. We're asking for eyes to see, Lord, ears to hear. We're asking for your spirit just to reveal to us truth tonight, Father. We look to your word for truth. So go before us now, Father, and give us your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. In the chapter previous to this, Jesus had healed a man who had a bunch of demons living with him. And you guys remember that story, the demoniac, right? Crazy story. So Jesus, you know, he casts the demons into the pigs. The pigs take off, um, you know. Anyways, crazy story, right? Commonly known as the story with the demoniac. But really incredible story about Jesus restoring this man who is uh, once completely hopeless. And that miracle, it was done on what we would call the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, okay? So this is where the Decapolis is located. It's the Gentile side of the sea. In this chapter, in Mark chapter 5, in verse 21, we see that Jesus is moving back to what we would call the Jewish side of the sea, okay? 
Um, and we notice immediately, right when Jesus shows up, this happens quite often whenever Jesus shows up, but large crowds start to gather around Jesus because everyone's hearing about this radical rabbi, <laughs> right? They're like, oh man, we got to go check out this Jesus guy. So that is happening here. And we are introduced to one of our first characters. Uh, who is this man? Let's read. Let's pick it up in verse 22 of Mark chapter 5. It says, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. Pause there for just a moment, okay? We read that he's one of the rulers of the synagogue. Okay, well, what does that mean? I want to suggest to you that he is the equivalent of a modern-day pastor, okay? So he's the spiritual uh, supervisor of um, the synagogue. It is also clear that um, as the ruler of the synagogue, he's a well-known person. Um, when you know, he drives by, everyone's like, hey, you know, Jairus, we know you. We see him at the market, things like that. You say hi to him. Everyone knows who Jairus is, right? Prominent member of the community. Um, he had several responsibilities at the synagogue. Again, not only was he the spiritual supervisor, but he was in charge of the administrative tasks in the synagogue. So he's the guy setting up chairs, uh, vacuuming, making coffee. It, I don't, not that they drink coffee, I don't know. But yeah, he's doing all that sort of stuff too. He's preparing the service, preparing it for people. Um, but he has a problem. Okay, let's check out this uh, problem together, picking it up again in verse 22. Jairus by name, and when he saw him, speaking of Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. Jairus has a problem. His daughter is dying. He's in a really desperate state at this point, but he believes, he's showing a measure of faith here because he believes that Jesus can heal his daughter, who again, she's at the point of death, so she's in a really bad way at this point. He believes that Jesus can heal her with a touch though, right? To me, Jairus is the ultimate picture of desperation. Completely desperate, right? Now remember, a great multitude is gathered here. I believe that there's like a ton of people here with probably a lot of different needs. I, there's people who are demon-possessed, uh, physically lame or impaired people that need healing, right? People with super legitimate physical and spiritual needs are gathering around Jesus. And Jairus makes it to the front of the group. And um, I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, he falls before Jesus' feet. I don't think it's a coincidence. And here's why. His little girl is dying. And for a father... Um, I'm not going to cry during this portion. I'm saying it right now, okay? I'm speaking it into existence. <laughs> but listen, I have a daughter, right? She's two years old, a little over two years old. Her name is Posey. Many of you uh, know her. She's my firstborn child. Uh, I also have a son. His name is Israel. You guys know him too. He's one, just a little dude. But, um, and I don't have a favorite between them. I can honestly say that. You know, they're totally, uh, they're totally both my favorite, right? But there is, I, I will say this, there is something very special about a girl being my firstborn child, and there's just something, I don't know what it is, man, about having a daughter, and I can't even explain it. Um, well, I'll try to explain it. Okay, something happens. This is the thing I noticed when I became a dad. It was like um, this healthy fear comes upon you, right? It's like the protective instinct that you have about your family is like amplified times a million, right? So... When I got married, it was like, okay, boom, the protective instinct is up, right? But when my daughter was born, it was like, 
it was like, okay, I'm on like high alert when we go to the grocery store, you know? It's, yeah, so... Yeah, when you become a dad, it's like, that's why dads, I think they, we lose our sense of fashion so quickly because we're just like, is it tactical? Is it functional? <laughs> like, is it going to help protect my family? If it's not that, dude, I don't even care. I don't care what I'm wearing, you know? So, seriously, it happens. <laughs> yeah, once we had Posey, it was like, you kind of do this healthy, like, growing up thing. I, it, yeah, you just start to care so much. I remember asking my kid, I'm like, do we have health insurance? Like, we need that. We need that stuff. <laughs> we need all this stuff. But here's my point, man. Having a daughter is like the scariest and like the best thing ever. I love my daughter so much. She's so much fun. Uh, she's just, yeah, the light of our lives for sure. Um, and in the blink of a moment, it's like I remember holding her and just being like, oh, yeah, I would die for her. It's not even a hard question, you know. You just immediately are willing to forfeit your life for another um, and I think any dad worth his salt is willing to do that for their kids, man. You dads in the room, you know, you know what I'm saying. But um, if my daughter, just think about my little girl, man, if she was ill, if she was um, at, you know, lying at the point of death, the question is, it's not like what would I do, it's what wouldn't I do, right, to see her healed. So, I, I mean, the fact that Jairus got to the front of the crowd is not a surprise at all to me. I'd be like, get out of my way. I'm getting to Jesus first, right? If there's a chance, even a sliver of hope that this rabbi, this person I've been hearing about can heal my daughter, I'm, you bet I am talking to that man. I'm going to do whatever it takes, right? So Jesus, or Jairus, he falls before, uh, before Jesus, um, and I just hope that, that paints a picture for you, man. We have a man just in the most desperate condition uh, possible. I, yeah, I just don't think there's anyone more desperate than a, than a father that's trying to save his daughter, right? And in verse 23, again, he said, come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. He's showing this confidence, this faith, saying, look, Jesus, if you can make it to my place, and I know that just with a touch, you can heal her. A lot of faith. So what happens? Let's pick it up in verse 24. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Okay, they're on their way to Jairus' house now. Jesus had, again, showed up at the beach. Jairus falls before him, says, okay, yet apparently, from what we can tell, Jesus has agreed to do the thing that Jairus asked. He's like, okay, let's roll. Let's go. We're going to your place right now. And what happens? We are introduced to a lady. Let's look at verse 25, okay? It says this. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. We are now introduced to this Jewish woman, and she's in really bad shape as well. We read that she had a, a flow of blood for 12 years. She had been suffering from a type of hemorrhaging. Uh, really, it was just a severely messed up menstruation cycle that's going on where she's just bleeding 24-7, right? Um, really, really sad. In the Gospel of Luke, we know that Luke was a, he was a physician. He was a doctor. And he tells us that she had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Luke was a doctor, so he understood how medical bills could really drain a family's finances quickly. Maybe some of you have experienced that in your own lives, just the cost of medical care. So this, that happened to this lady. 
And not only that, it, it gets worse because it sounds like there were some attempted treatments and they didn't work. Nothing was going to take, right? She's not only in a bad way, but it's getting worse, growing worse, right? And this is for the last 12 years of her life. This is a really big deal because not only is it uncomfortable, right? Um, strength draining, it's financially draining to this emotional toll. But so on top of all that, there would have been big time serious repercussions between her and God and her and God's people, her whole community, okay? What am I talking about? Well, according to Jewish tradition, this woman, because of the flow of blood, was by law, ceremonially and socially unclean. She's unclean, okay? Um, I want to read to you guys Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19. This is the law, okay? Throw it up on the screen here too. And this is in the NLT uh, version. Whenever a woman has her menstrual period, she will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Anyone, and this is important, underline this, anyone who touches her during that time will be unclean until evening. Because of this illness, she was unable to have human contact. (laughs) She could not touch another person without making them unclean because she was bleeding 24-7, right? Can't touch anybody. Uh, And then this is Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, just towards the end of that chapter. It says, if a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated, so even if it's not to do with the menstrual cycle, unrelated to her menstrual period or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. As long as you're bleeding, you're unclean, okay? Last 12 years, this is what this woman was dealing with. This is uh, her reality. Even today in Israel, this is a really big deal, right? A lady sales clerk, right, a clerk at a store in Israel today, um, they will normally not place change from a transaction directly into a man's hand. They'll put it on the counter. That way there's no risk of, you know, her being on her menstrual cycle and placing it to a man's hand and touching the man and therefore defiling him. So they still do that to this day. It's a really big deal, right? You avoid that risk of making someone else unclean. So again, not only physical pain, right? It's like, I, you know, I'm, I can't even imagine what that's like. I don't want to pretend like I, like I could, but just period 24-7, right? She's also in financial trouble, physical pain, financial trouble, emotional distress. Sounds awful, right? Um, she's in a very, very bad way, but this woman too, she hears about Jesus. I think like Jairus, she thought to herself, if there's a chance, and we're going to read what happens. Okay, look at verse 27, Mark chapter 5, verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, dude, I love that line. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Okay, this is very interesting, you guys. First, we see this desperate man, right, Jairus? Next, we're seeing this desperate woman, okay? And we get a little insight into what the woman was thinking. In verse 28, we read the conversation. This is the conversation that she's having with herself, okay? So this is her, like, pep talk, so to speak. She's amping herself up to go touch his clothes, right? She says, if I can touch his clothes or garment, I shall be made well. 
The same story occurs, it's, it's in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, we get Matthew's take on it. And this is what Matthew said in Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. Suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind, and listen to this, and touched the hem of his garment. Okay, what does that mean, the hem of his garment? What is, and here's the other question, right? What is so special about Jesus' clothes? Is there anything special about Jesus' clothes? Here's another question. Why did she come from behind? It seems like she's sneaking, right? <laughs> she's sneaking from behind, right, to try to touch the clothes. Okay, um, this is like show and tell time. Check this out. I got something for you guys right here. Okay. Um, this, in my hands, is uh, a semi-traditional uh, Jewish tallit. I say semi-traditional because I got it off Amazon for 20 bucks, so I can't imagine. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> Intense, you know. All right, here it is. <laughs> um, and I, I want to point out a couple things. Uh, beautiful, right? I want to point out a couple things uh, about this. And uh, just as a disclaimer, though, before we get going, I, I am not an expert on Jewish history, um, I am a student of the Bible, for sure, and I, I've done a lot of research on this. Um, but all, all that to say, if I pronounce something wrong, please forgive me um, if you're a, a practicing Jew or um, anything like that, seriously, because I, I might say something uh, wrong, and I don't want to offend anybody, but, in, but yeah, anyway, so little show and tell time. Um, I also wanted to talk about this just because of what's currently going on in Israel right now, just to pay homage to what is, you know, our faith. It lies with, you know, it happened here, it, it happened there in Israel. So I thought it, anyways, just thought it would be cool. But this is it. This is a tallit, right? Um, it was worn by Jews in ancient Bible times. It still is worn today by Jews. Tallit, in short, it is a prayer shawl, okay? Um, wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. This garment is used at all major Jewish occasions. So your uh, bar mitzvah, wedding, uh, burial, uh, circumcision, you're wearing this thing, okay? Holidays, weddings, it's to be worn in times of joy, times of sorrow, and times of celebration. When you would put it on, the tradition was to kiss the uh, prayer insignia here. I want to give that thing a little smooch. Put this thing on, and then you would say the, uh, the following blessing. I'm going to, um, I'm sorry. And first, they would cover their eyes with it like this prior to putting it on. Go like this, and then you would say the following blessing. I'm not going to say it in Hebrew because I'm just going to embarrass myself, but I'll say it in English. Blessed are you, our God, creator of time and space, who enriches our lives with holiness, commanding us to wrap ourselves in the tallit. Okay, T-A-L-L-I-T, tallit. And from what I understand, traditionally it was longer, it was more of a poncho type wrap, but it has gotten shorter throughout the years. Um, but there are three distinct requirements for it to be called, you know, this, for its lead, for it to be a prayer shawl, right? Number one, the garment is to be an outer covering, okay? So nothing is outside of this. It's like the outermost article of clothing that you're wearing, right? And it is also supposed to have four corners, okay? This is really important. Check this out. So on this side, I got two, one, two. And on this side, I got two, four corners, Right? Um, on each of the four corners, there is to be a tassel, okay? Tassel right here. I don't know if you guys can see these. See the longer, longer tassels there? They have five knots in it, and that's a, there's like a numerical significance to all this stuff. I'm really kind of skimming the surface on this just because of time's sake. 
There's blue thread running through it as well. And these tassels are called tzitzit, T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. Okay, it's, try to say that one, just, one to, just for fun, try it. Tzitzit, yeah, T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T, right? <laughs> blue thread running through it. Okay, in biblical times, Jewish men, they wore this not just uh, at prayer, they wore it like all the time, all right? And of course, you guys have heard of uh, the Apostle Paul. You've heard maybe before that he was a tent maker, right? Have you guys heard that? How many of you have heard that before, right? He was a tent maker. Um, talit means covering, okay? It's Hebrew for covering. So many people think that he, Paul, was, he was a covering maker, Many believe that he actually made prayer shawls. I always used to think he like, you know, worked at REI and made like tents, you know. But covering, like he made these things, prayer shawls, right? A um, couple more things about it. Okay, in the Old Testament, the Jews, they had the tent of meeting, right? That's where Moses would meet with the Lord, the tent of meeting. Well, all of a sudden, there's like six million Jews now and wandering in the wilderness. How are we going to fit six million people into one tent? We're not. We're not going to be able to do it, right? It's just... Doesn't make sense logistically. So what did the Lord do? Everyone gets their own tent. This is your own personal private space to meet with the Lord one-on-one. It's your sanctuary to meet with him, again, uh, private. And this was their prayer closet, okay, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Pretty cool, right? I haven't used it for that purpose yet, but I will. (laughs) The text here indicates what we're reading in Mark chapter 5, and I promise I'm going somewhere with this, Okay. But the text indicates that it was specifically the tassels of his robe, Jesus' robe, that she touched, okay? That's what she was reaching for, and that's what she touched. And it's an important detail from a Hebraic viewpoint, right? Again, they're called tzitzit. They still are, again, these are still worn by Jews in order to fulfill really a biblical commandment, okay? This biblical commandment comes from the book of uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and the intention for wearing it was to remind the people of God's commandments. Okay, I want to, this is why they had the tassels though. Okay, what's the big deal about the tassels? This is Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41. Okay, we're going to throw it up here on the uh, screen for you. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Okay. We're going to pull up really quick to Numbers chapter 15, verse 38 here, just what we read. That's why they had the tassels, right? Okay, this is where it gets crazy, you guys. Again, stick with me for a second here. Okay, this word translate, that, that word corner, corner is translated kanaf in Hebrew, K-A-N-A-P-H, okay? Kanaf. Uh, it can also be translated wings, okay? Wings. It's translated that way some 76 times in the Bible, okay? For this reason, the corners of the tallit of the prayer shawl are often called the wings of the prayer shawl, okay? You would refer to this as, yeah, these are the wings of my prayer shawl, okay? 
Just to summarize, again, talit, that's the whole deal. Corner, kanaf, tassel, tzitzit, okay? Who cares about all this stuff? <laughs> well, listen, I'll tell you. Um, if you, <laughs> Nancy does, yeah. Okay, if you were a God-fearing Jew, you believed the Old Testament, and you were await, anxiously awaiting the day that the Messiah would return, right? Everyone is looking for the Messiah. Where is the Messiah you're anxiously awaiting the day the Messiah would appear. Jesus, we know, of course, was that Messiah. But most people, even those closest to him, did not recognize him as that. They did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, even though there were a ton of prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling. He was doing it right in front of their eyes, and they still did not recognize it, okay? One of those messianic prophecies is found in the book of Malachi, Okay, Malachi chapter four, verse two. We're gonna throw it up on the screen here for you guys if you don't wanna turn there. Malachi chapter four, verse two. Listen to this, okay? This was a prophecy, again, concerning Jesus. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. This verse, number one, it's proof that gaining weight is biblical. (laughs) Amen? Amen? All right, amen, yeah. (laughs) that's like my that's like my whole thing right there all right no but it tells a prophecy about jesus okay the son of righteousness is one of the many terms for the coming messiah okay that was one of his names prince of peace you've heard all these names for jesus right well one of them was the son of righteousness this prophecy stated that when he came he would have healing in his wings now jewish people knew that this did not mean that he was going to have like some wings coming out of his back or like angel wings or big bird wings or anything like that. No, Jews did not think that. God-fearing Jews understood that that meant that the corners of his talit, the wings of his prayer shawl, would contain healing power. He will have healing in his wings, okay? When this woman reached out and touched the hem, the end of his garment, she was reaching out with the radical faith and the radical belief that he's the Messiah, He was the Messiah, not some circus freak like healer dude just passing through town, okay? Okay, sorry, I'm I'm gonna get fired up here. I believe that this woman, she knew the Old Testament and she believed the prophet Malachi. She believed, if I can touch the edge of his cloak, I will be made well because I know if he is the Messiah, if he is the son of righteousness, he will have healing in his wings. Cool, right? Come on. (laughs) So she wasn't like he's some sort of like shaman or, you know, some party trick, right? She was saying, I need this man to heal me because he is the Messiah. Big difference, okay? And this is not, this isn't like a one-off thing about Jesus' robe either, okay? This happened a lot of other times. Many other people thought this way about Jesus' robe. We're going to bring up Matthew chapter 14, verse 35 through 36. Listen to this. When the men of that place recognized him, speaking of Jesus, they sent out into all that surrounding region, uh, brought to him all were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now look at this, Mark chapter 6, verse 56. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. <laughs> Man, this woman, despite the risk, okay, this woman, despite the risk of defiling the rabbi, 
she reaches out. We, it's hard to understand from our, our culture, but to her, she was really rolling the dice because, again, she was unclean. Um, look what happens in verse 29, though, man. I love this. Immediately, Mark chapter 5, verse 29, sorry, jumping around. The fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. I love this lady, dude. She's awesome. Jesus said, who touched my clothes? (laughs) The disciples are like, who didn't touch your clothes, right? The multitude is thronging him. It's packed. Everyone is touching him, right? But this woman, there's just a difference between jostling up next to him and and reaching out in faith. We see that here. Why was this woman so scared? Well, again, we talked about it before, but the woman was so scared because she knew, imagine she touches Jesus and it don't work. Imagine if she's not healed, all of a sudden she's just defiled him. She knew that. So she knew, if she would have miscalculated, right, if she would have reached out, not been healed of her flow of blood, it would have meant that she would have made Jesus unclean, right? Her uncleanness would have defiled him. And then he would have been on lockdown. He would have been unclean until the evening, right? And I wonder too, this was just a sidebar. This is totally just me, my weird brain, all right? I wonder then if he would have even been permitted to go into Jairus' house because of his uncleanness. I don't know exactly the law on that, but that did not happen. It is a flat-out fact that this woman, again, by Jewish law, she is unclean, bleeding 24-7, right? When she reached out and touched the corner of Jesus' talib, She did not make him dirty, man. He purified her, right? (laughs) He healed her. A little bit of application here for us, I believe. But what happens when we um, reach out and touch Jesus, so to speak? We don't make him unclean by our sin, right? He makes us clean by his righteousness. I have felt this fear, (laughs) similar to this woman. Um, It's the fear that like, Lord, my life is jacked up. There's some messed up stuff going on in my life. There's some uncleanness, some dirtiness, right? Um, Man, I'm here to tell you, you're not going to make him dirty. He'll make you clean. (laughs) This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2. He said, "I, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In other words, I didn't come for the clean people, man. I came for the dirty ones, for the unclean ones. Uh, I've heard it put this way, the effect that Jesus has on us. uh, There's a cool parallel here. Uh, The cleansing is similar to bleach, right? We're not worried about bleach getting dirty. (laughs) Bleach just is clean. Anything that comes into contact with it is like purified, right? Um, Now bleach probably isn't great for you. Jesus is great for you, right? (laughs) Anyways, all that to say, bleach, it, it remains the cleansing product and anything that comes into contact with it is purified. Man, I just can't believe the faith of this woman to do what she did. Uh, it's interesting, too, we read that Jesus calls, really, he calls her out. Um, when he says, who touched my clothes, I, I, I think he knew, but he wanted to make it public, right? Jesus calls the woman out. He says, who touched my clothes? 
I know for sure, based on this woman's actions, right, because she did the sneaking thing and tried to come up behind him, um, she would have been totally content to be like, healed, all right, I'm out of here, you know, just like, be on my way, I'll be healed, and I'll scoot, right? But I think Jesus wanted to make sure those around knew that she was healed, including Jairus, okay? Last thing I want to point out about this section, it's verse 34. Uh, This is so cool, okay? In verse 34, he had said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. I just learned about this recently. This is crazy, you guys. The word daughter there is this Greek word. It's pronounced through goder, okay? It's it's spelt like thigh gator, but um, it's pronounced through goder, all right? And it's defined as just, you know, daughter. But one of the definitions for that term that Jesus uses when he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, is a daughter of God. Kind of cool, right? And here's the interesting part. Jesus never called anyone else by this name. No other person was called daughter by Jesus, okay? Isn't that crazy? Jesus reserved this name for only that woman. I think Jesus knew exactly how scared she was (laughs) for doing this thing. I mean, for 12 years, I mean... We don't know for sure, but I imagine for 12 years she has very limited human contact or no human contact at all, right? For 12 years she hasn't touched anybody, but now Jesus is saying, you can touch me. You can touch me, right? Daughter, just this tender name that he speaks over her. When you can reach out to no other, you can reach out to me. So this desperate, scared woman, man, she's healed She exemplifies this incredible faith in Jesus. But what about the guy that we talked about at the beginning, man? What about poor Jairus? We forgot about Jairus. You guys forgot about him. I didn't forget about you. You guys forgot. Jairus. Dude, he's standing there and he's like, okay, yeah, awesome. Let's hustle. You know, she's at the point of death, remember? So our scared father is still, speaking again of Jairus, is still here. And then look what happens, you guys, in verse 35. While he, speaking of Jesus, was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Man, I'm sure Jairus' heart was just broken, boom, right at that moment. And I'm sure he was thinking to himself, it's because of the interruption, right? It's because of this woman that we didn't make it. Uh, why would the Lord allow this interruption to occur? It, and it, because of that, because Jesus stopped for this woman, right? He wasn't too busy for her. It seems like Jesus was choosing her healing over uh, Jairus' daughter's healing, right? Kind of a one or the other situation. And again, we got to put ourselves in Jairus' uh, shoes or sandals here. It's a roller coaster, man. First, he hears the news that his daughter is dying, right? That's, that's like ground zero, Second thing, he hears like hope. Yeah, there's a, there's a treatment, there's a guy, he's coming through. Yeah, he's back, he's coming this way now. They're gonna dock any second. Well, I'm there, right? And then now this hope is shattered when his daughter still dies, okay? Now we know the end of the story. We know that she's raised to life. Jairus does not know that though. We gotta understand it from his place. And if I really put myself there in his place, ma'am, you go through all the emotions, right? Um, I'm angry, I'm really angry. 
Because, and this is just me being transparent, man, if I had to choose between the woman or my daughter, I'm sorry, it's my daughter 10 times out of 10. I, that's just what it is, man. It's my daughter. I'm, I'm choosing her to get healed, right? All the emotions, anger, shame, sadness, fear, for sure, right? And here's the cherry on top, too. This is, they say to Jairus, these people that come back from his house, they say, why trouble the teacher any further? Why waste Jesus' time? I want to park it there for a second. Um, these people are naysayers, man. <laughs> They're saying, look, the child's dead. Quit wasting the teacher's time. He's got better things to do. Now, if Jesus had said, yep, sorry, Jairus. See ya. Get, sorry it didn't work out. See you around. Guess we'll go our separate ways. Not what happens though, right? Look at Jesus' response to him. Verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. In the gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus said, only believe and she will be made well. So he promises that she'll be made well, right? But what Jesus is saying is contrary to what the people coming, the naysayers coming from Jairus' house are saying. It seems almost a cruel thing to say to Jairus, right? Don't be afraid. But Jesus knew for Jairus, his fear could hinder his faith, right? Originally, when I had gotten to this section, I, what I was previously going to say was that fear and faith don't mix. Um, but the more I thought about it, I'm not sure that's exactly true. <laughs> I, because here's why. Um, the example is the woman that we just read about, right? Dude, she's scared. She's freaked out, but she still reaches. She's scared, man. You can't say that she's not scared. It says that she was fearing, trembling, right? I think it would make more sense to say that if, you know, we're being transparent, we're being honest, my fear can be overcome by faith, okay? Doesn't mean I'm void of fear, like that, that I just am super not scared, right? My fear can be overcome by faith, though. And same thing with Jairus, right? It's not that he was without fear. He was afraid, that's why Jesus said, don't be afraid, man. But he was encouraging Jairus. You need to have greater faith, though. And I believe that God allowed the interruption of this woman, right, in order to boost Jairus' faith. The naysayers are like, don't trouble Jesus any further. Book's closed, right? Jesus says, do not be afraid. Only believe. And I believe right here Jesus is saying, look, Jairus, I just healed my daughter. I can heal your daughter too, right? I can heal her. You just saw me do it, man. You saw me. The proof is in the pudding. I don't even know what that saying means, but we all know what it means. <laughs> Someone needs to explain that to me. <laughs> Jesus is saying, look, I'm the Messiah. I'm the healer. I can do the thing. I'm, I'm capable of doing the thing that you asked me to do, right? I just healed this daughter. But now it's like the crossroads, right? He's like, Jairus, dude, you're going to have to trust me. But this woman, she had set the example for Jairus. She had shown him what can happen when your fear is overcome with radical faith. What Jesus was asking Jairus to do, just think about that, that moment for a second. He says, Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. This, at minimum, is a radical request for a dad, okay, <laughs> who just lost his daughter, one, don't be afraid. Second, believe, right? I just wanted to say really quickly, but for you and I, maybe you are in 
I don't know, a similar situation to Jairus where you had a hope and an expectation that this situation would go this way, and it did not. It went a different direction that you did not expect. Because at one point, I think Jairus let him let his hopes get up a little bit, right? When they're rolling with the woman and they're going to his house, there's a moment where he's like, okay, man, we got a chance. Like, we're on the way. I can't believe I, I cut the line, you know, and I had to knock some people out, but I cut the line and I got to Jesus first and we're headed to my place. The interruption occurs. Now it just seems like everything is hopeless and totally, totally hopeless, right? Fear is what the naysayers said. Why trouble Jesus any further? And I, I can say that's, that's true for all of us, man. Naysayers will tell you you're wasting God's time. You're not just wasting your own time. You're actually putting a burden on the Lord. You're wasting his time too with your nagging requests. Dude, that's a lie. That's a lie, right? Jesus is saying, Jairus, the next step is gonna require like some big time faith, okay? So what happens next? Let's go to verse 37. It says, and he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. loudly. Okay, many of you Bible scholars, you are aware that there were these professional mourners who were paid to weep for people at a funeral, pretty commonplace, or at the time of someone's death. Uh, this was actually a requirement by law. It was required to have at least uh, two flute players and one uh, professional mourner at the time of someone's death. Uh, the tradition was then to sit Sheba for seven days. So this is where we're on the ground. Um, a portion of our outer garment, garment is uh, torn. And we don't do any work. We're just sitting on the ground and we're mourning, okay? Uh, verse 39, look what happens. When he came in, he said to them, to the professional mourning people, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Look at this. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. So Jesus says again to those professionals, the professional criers, what's up with all the racket? The child is not dead. She's sleeping, right? And I don't think Jesus said this because he was like out of touch with reality or something like that. He was just aware of a spiritual truth. But we read something in verse 40 here, right? This is interesting. It says they ridiculed him. Well, why were they ridiculing him? Number one, I think they were ridiculing him because they simply did not believe that she could be raised from the dead. They did not believe, okay? Secondly, they were ridiculing him because now, if she ain't dead, they're out of a job. <laughs> we, we're paid to be here for like, you know, the whole week wailing, but you're going to put us out of a job, dude, if you come in here and heal this lady. Jesus was bad for business, man. He kept raising people to life. <laughs> bad time to be a professional mourner, okay? <laughs> I love that. Okay, but take note of Jesus' response. Verse 40 it says he put them outside. When they ridiculed him, when they're like, nah, you can't do it. When they ridiculed him, he's like, go take a hike, man. Get out of here. You guys can't be in the house anymore. Here's the thing, though. Imagine Jairus. His faith is already in a pretty fragile state. He's not doing great, right? Okay? He puts them outside. And I... It, puts could mean a lot of things, okay? I, think, I like to imagine it was like a, you know chokehold outside. Anyways, I think there's an application for us here. 
do not be obligated to entertain somebody who ridicules your faith or mocks God. Do not feel obligated to entertain a mocker, okay? Uh, we live in a world that loves to just cast doubt on God. That's just the reality, okay? And now, I'm not saying don't evangelize to people who are not Christians. That's not what I'm saying. Um, it just means that when people turn to that other side of, like, mockery, I don't have to listen to it every time, okay? Those people can get out the house. <laughs> Quick story about this. I... Uh, Attended Bible college for a couple years, and there was somebody there who I was friends with, this person, and uh, this person was totally a Christian on fire for the Lord. After Bible college, we get out, we still stay connected through social media and things like that, and I noticed this person started posting things that were mocking God. And for a long time, like way too long, I just let it ride, and we still talked, and I was, you know, um, we were still, not all the time, but we still did... uh, talk. Uh, But at a certain point, I feel like the Lord said to me, Jonah, the stuff that you are looking at, that that person is sending, it ain't good for your faith. It's not good. Okay. It's not boosting your faith at all. In fact, it's diminishing your faith. And so I was like, okay, cut ties. And I don't feel bad about it. Okay. There just is a time and a place when we can say, look, I, I don't, I don't need to listen to it. Okay. I need you to step outside, okay? Jesus puts the mockers outside. Then look at this, verse 41. It says, then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, uh, which is translated, and this is from Aramaic. It was the little girl's native language, so she would have understood it. It says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately, the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. Interesting that we get this detail that Jesus took the girl by the hand. Um, To a Jewish person, a dead body was like the source of everything impure, okay? It was totally and completely against Jewish law to touch a dead body, right? That's part of the reason the demoniac in this same chapter was in such bad shape because he lived in a graveyard. Well, Jews are like, no, dude, we don't go near graveyards. That's not our jam. We don't, nope, we don't have anything to do with anything dead, okay? If the little girl was in fact dead, then Jesus was at risk of touching a dead body, an unclean body, okay? But I believe that Jesus, once again, is demonstrating his power over what is unclean, even death, Okay? Also, regarding that phrase that Jesus says, little girl arise, that phrase, Talitha Kumai, people have tried to take that phrase and run with it and make like a whole healing uh, ministry thing with it. Uh, I just want to say, I I don't think there was anything magical about the phrase that he used. Uh, The emphasis is not what was said, but who said it? (laughs) Jesus said it, man. So she got up. Verse 43 But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Dude, I love this. And at the end, he's like, and chicken noodle soup for this lady. (laughs) She's almost a teenager. We've got to feed her. We're going to wrap it up, guys. But um, Jairus and this woman, they were very different, okay? They were. He was the ruler of a synagogue, right? prominent member of the community. She was anonymous. We, don't, we still don't even know her name, except Jesus called her daughter. He was well off. I mean, he could afford these professional mourners, right? She had no money. We read that it had been drained um, 
via medical expenses, right? She had been suffering for the last 12 years. Jairus had enjoyed, enjoyed uh, his daughter for 12 years. She was 12 years old. Jairus, he came to Jesus publicly. This woman tried to come to Jesus discreetly, right? Tried to do the sneaking thing. A lot of differences, but they did have something in common. Number one, they were both scared. They were both freaked out. Mark described the woman in verse 33. It says she was fearing and trembling, right? When Jairus found out again that his daughter was dead, Jesus had to tell him, hey man, don't be afraid, right? They're both scared. They had fear in common, but more importantly, they had faith in common, right? They both shared a great faith in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you tonight, um, if you have a fear, if you have an anxiety, maybe a, a draining worry, a constant worry, a burden, like this man or this woman, the best advice I could give you is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus commended this woman for, for her faith. He said, your faith has made you well. That's the thing that did it. That's the thing that made you well. That's just a challenge to us tonight, you guys. We must be willing to believe in Jesus wholeheartedly. We gotta believe that he is the Messiah, that he is who he says he is. He's the chosen one of God, the one sent for our sins, right? He's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. We, I gotta believe that he is that, right? And again, we live in a world, all the world wants to do is cast out upon not only religion, but just any relationship with Jesus Christ they wanna cast out on it. Maybe you, again, just are experiencing some fear or some of that doubt. I know I certainly have. In Luke chapter 17, verse five, the disciples, they ask Jesus, they say, increase our faith. Increase it. I think there were several times uh, throughout their walk with Jesus where the disciples were like, man, my faith is a little weak. <laughs> my faith needs to like get in the gym because like, these people have a lot of faith, right? Uh, maybe tonight, man, maybe we just need to ask the same thing for a faith increase, a faith boost, right? You guys remember the story of the Roman centurion? This is in Matthew chapter eight. And I'll paraphrase the whole story here, but Jesus, re uh, this centurion, he reaches out to Jesus and says, hey, I got a servant, servant is sick, will you come heal him? Uh, Jesus says, yeah, for sure, I'll swing by your place, I'm, I'm ahead of there, right? The Roman says, uh, no, you don't have to. Uh, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. Just say the word, and I know he'll be healed. Jesus, it says that Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. He says, I don't even get this kind of faith in Israel. Pete, you definitely haven't been shown this kind of faith, man. Remember the water? Oh. <laughs> uh. In this story of the woman with the flow of blood, I don't know if you caught that there, but at the end, Jesus only takes James, um, Peter, and John in to the end when he, when he heals the little girl, raises her from the dead. Um, and th that's, they were just Jesus's inner circle, right? But this is cool. This is what, it, when Peter wrote his letter, 1 Peter, he said something that I, I think about really often. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter knew that faith was important to God. In fact, he said, look, it's more precious than gold. Your faith is precious, man. It's important. 
Tonight, I just want to encourage you, babe. maybe you need a little faith boost. I know I do oftentimes. And in Luke chapter 17, when the disciples ask, increase our faith, Jesus goes on to say the whole mustard seed thing, and he says, look, I can do a lot with just a little bit of faith. Um, man, this woman, she showed such great radical faith. Jairus, man, he was hanging on by a thread, but <laughs> he followed through, followed Jesus all the way to his house. And they got to see what happens when we just believe, we have faith in Jesus Christ. May you and I be those whose faith is increased tonight. All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, we do ask that, God, in your name, just asking for an extra measure, Lord. Oftentimes, we are prone just to doubt, Lord, to be scared. Uh, for anybody in this room, Lord, that would just raise their hand and say, yeah, that's me. I just am scared, flat out scared. Um, I just pray that your comforting touch would be upon them, Lord, that you would say, don't be afraid, only believe, like you said to Jairus. <laughs> Lord, I pray again, just, a, just a, a special prayer over those folks who are just may, maybe dealing with some fear or doubt. Lord, we, we all do. And so again, I just pray for my brother or sister who is struggling with that, Father. And just corporately, Lord, as we... Um, see the events around the world, we turn on the news, Lord, it's freaky. We get, I, I know for me, Lord, I just, uh, my heart starts racing a little bit as we look around, God, but we trust you, Lord. That's why we've gathered here. We trust you, Lord. We believe that, we believe the word that you have spoken, God. We've placed our lives upon that as our foundation and our truth, Father. So please increase our faith tonight, God. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.